I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's such a pleasure to be here, and the special issue of Granta that uh, Josh and I have co-edited on The Politics of Feeling doesn't come out for a couple of days, Valentine's Day it comes out, but you can get it here tonight early, and I strongly recommend that you do that because it's full of wonderful, truly wonderful, life-changing and perspective-changing things. The Politics of Feeling is the subject of a special issue, but everybody has interpreted it in their own very unique way. And it is open to so many different interpretations, but I think we're all aware that there's a kind of growing, amplifying discourse about the problem of feelings in politics, but also the need for a more feeling politics. And the way in which politics, when it's taken over by kind of extreme or historical feelings, uh, and the way in which your own political life can become overwhelmed by extreme and, uh, and for many of us, unfamiliar new forms of extreme feelings is, is, I suppose, the context of this issue. But it, it has been interpreted in many different ways, including uh, the literal feeling of feeling, the, the, the physical feeling of feeling. The first essay in the collection by Poppy Seabag Montefiore is about the sense of touch and her perception of how in China, since China moved, turned into a market economy, the way in which people touch each other has, has been transformed as well. But there are all kinds of essays, including an interview I did with the psychoanalyst Adam Phillips about politics in the consulting room and the way in which people are talking about their feelings and their political feelings and perhaps uh, sharing their forbidden, politically incorrect feelings in that space. And what's going on in that space in terms of politics? Because I suppose if there is one dominant idea that goes behind this book, it's the idea that our feelings, as much as they might sound like private property, as much as they might sound simply personal, are in fact always mediated by the context, the cultures, and particularly the political cultures in which we live. Our feelings are social, our feelings are shared, and our feelings are very, very contagious. So we know this personally, that if we feel shy, we're likely to make somebody else feel similarly bashful. Or if we feel full of hate for someone, it's unlikely they're going to meet that hate with anything other than hate uh, as well. But we're seeing this, of course, politically and geopolitically as well. I think the most sort of on-the-nose, in, in a way, essay about the way in which politics, politics and politicians can manipulate feelings and, the ex- and with an extraordinary rendition of how feelings 
are replacing in some ways what we might have thought about politics before as sort of debating facts, sort of arguments, ideas, ideology. And the way in, that, in which that might have been replaced by a, a sort of an appeal to people's feelings and their fantasy lives and their imagination is the essay by Peter Pomerantsev, Normalnost, which is an extraordinary essay, which once you've read it, you can never take it back. You've read it now. So you will now see the world. So be, be warned. Be warned. Once you've read it, you've read it. One of the reasons we invited Peter to write this essay is I'm a huge fan of his writing, and I'm particularly a fan of his sensibility and his voice and his style and the way in which he, he goes into incredibly complex and nuanced fields, but with a kind of sensibility that makes you feel somehow you're, you're both implicated and able to be, uh, in some ways, criti- critically at a distance from them. And with full of humor, but a humor that is very aware of the darkness. So his essay is called Normal Nost. And in some ways, it is taking us out of, if you read his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible about Russia, it is taking the insights we glean from that book and traveling with them to this place and to, and to the world beyond Russia and so on. But I, I would like you to just begin, if you would, wouldn't mind, Peter, by Tell me, what is normalnost? Oh. <clears throat> or not. Or you could begin somewhere else. No, no, no. That's such a great, that's such a great, that's such a great question. I'm not the first person to have noted this. There's actually a, a very good Keith Gesson essay in Foreign Affairs a few years ago, which also noted this. But it's something that's discussed a lot in Russia, which is in a country that's so sort of topsy-turvy, as Russia is, and it's gone through such intense changes, People do talk about нормальность a lot. Нормально. Это нормально. Это не нормально. And that can be both a kind of a code of behavior to say someone's being normal, like Putin's нормально. Not totally нормально. It's certainly not normatively normal, but it's kind of normal in, in some sort of way that other people understand. But also very often to refer to Russia as abnormal. На Западе нормально. In the West, it's normal. So here it's not normal. In the West, it's normal. So you send your kids to the West where it's normal. You, you, um, you know, send your money there if you, if you have it. I find it very important in Russia because cause it sort of slightly eats away at this notion that, you know, R- Russians have absolutely no, are absolutely fine with the world they live in. I mean, there is a notion of normal somewhere else. But it's a very, very sort of, you know, vapid term. It's very, very hard to pin down, but kind of critical as well. Uh, I guess here I'm talking about normalist in two ways. One about how the normalist in Russia was overturned in the 1990s. And also how, I don't know, the normalist here, the normal, the idea of normal that I had and Russians have, because at the end of the day I'm quite Russian, uh, have of the West also sort of disappeared after, I suppose, after the revolutionary year of 2016. So, yeah. So then the normal disappeared after 2016. And one of the things I heard from friends who came from elsewhere, whether it was from Egypt or Pakistan or Croatia or whatever, they said, oh, now you, now you know what politics is like in my country. So there was a, that one thing I kept hearing was, this is my normal. This is my normal. So I had the impression from those friends that it was no biggie what was going on uh, over here. This is, oh, now you know. But when I read your essay, I realized the trauma, the trauma belongs everywhere because this notion that somewhere in the world is normal and that has been trashed. This essay is actually very personal. You say that you found yourself sort of in 
what you thought were sort of activist groups, and then you realized I'm in a pseudo-therapy setting here, thinking I'm talking politics, but really trying to do therapy on myself. Well, can you talk about that? So there is, I, 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 I'm not going to write it, but somebody needs to write the kind of, you know, West and Northwest London in the sort of weeks after Brexit essay, where people were at gathering. <laughs> I was at, I'm not going to name names, because these were private things. It was at Hugo Dixon's house. And, uh, <laughs> And like everybody was gathered, and it was like you know centre right, like people from the Economist were there, and much more kind of people from Open Democracy were there, yeah. and everybody was gathered, and we were going to change this, and and so normalcy was going to be restored, and we were going to do something, we were going to do a lot of things, and somebody came in from Paddy Ashdown's office, he had a plan, and somebody else had a plan, and it's going to change. What about let's call the guys from Serbia because they've been through this. And after a while, I was like, oh my god, this has nothing to do with political strategy. This is just people just working through their world falling apart. And it's simply because I'd seen that in Russia and I'd lived in Eastern Europe. And as you said, I'd lived in countries where there's been a lot of that. I'd like to think I kind of regained my composure quite quickly. I have to say that to their credit, afterwards, these little groups then actually went on to, you know, play a key role in the people's vote movement. So they also then sublimated those emotions into concrete political strategy, which probably failed. But but still, so I don't think they were there for, forever. But but yes, it was very, um, it was clear that we were just, People were just sort of dealing with the with the aftershock. And there's that great LRB cover. Remember that guy with his hand like this? What have we done? LRB covers can be very good for that. The story you tell in this essay is is, and I think you're going to tell it in your next book, perhaps in 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 some ways as well. But is is that you had believed that Russia was a sort of weird curio, a hangover from the Cold War, pickled in its own agonies. You said, and it was just going to catch up in like 25 years time with the rest of the world. And then post 2016, but you were already onto it before, that notion of history reverses for you where you think, no, Russia is the future. Yes. So uh, <laughs> yes, that's kind of the basic premise of the piece is that, is that the future arrived first to Russia. So a lot, of, a lot of the sort of pathologies that we're seeing now here arrived there first. For, and we can go into details about how and why. But I don't know, for me personally, there was a slightly different journey. It was, you know, I wrote this book, uh, which is all about how, you know, living in a political culture in Russia in the early 2000s, where, you know, there was politicians who didn't just lie, they kind of reveled in the idea that facts don't matter, you know, celebrated that. Where kind of the, the idea of the majority and the people and the nation were being constantly redefined with every kind of like, you know, Putin's electoral cycle, which was kind of cycles of ideas rather than votes. You know, where all the language that you, we were used to, like democracy and freedom, had been turned inside out and was utterly meaningless. And also very much were kind of like, you know, a politics of feelings had been, had replaced sort of any coherent ideology. And I kind of run away from that in around 2010, going, and I think I have this line in my book, very naively, I need to go to a place where words mean things and people can be normal. And I came back to London. And overall, overall, like the first six years, I'd say that was still true. I mean, there's always been sort of like, weird things in British politics, especially in American politics, but the kind of the very mainstream of academia and journalism and um, politics that I, I, I kind of work in, they were still very much sort of, you know, you know, rational or pretended to be. And then 2016 happens and essentially all that, you know, that list of pathologies that I just said, I mean, they're all around us now. We talk about them all the time. And it just felt like Russia had caught up with me, you know, Putin was like, and then Putin was like, you know, doing these sort of ridiculous 
information operations that he does, and he was bombing Syria. And so he was he was on the front page all the time, and he was sort of leering at me, going, "Ha ha! You thought you could escape from me? I have come for you." And the book is, I mean, the essay, the next book, and especially this essay, is a way of trying to work out, okay, how on earth did London become so much like Moscow? I have sort of sense tested this against other people who used to live in Russia and now live here, and, and they all kind of repeat this. I don't think, I mean, I haven't done any kind of like, you know, a big social analysis on it, but just by asking my friends, a lot of people seem to have this kind of like, the sense of deja vu. I mean, so, so, so the essay is, is, is an attempt to work that out. Um, and I can do that. Do you want, do you want me to do that now? Shall I, shall I give yes. a little potted, the potted, yeah. work the potted it out. thesis? Work it, yes, please. I'm warning you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so actually, so basically in the piece, the piece is quite, it's basically based around two interviews. It's based around an interview with a Russian spin doctor from the 1990s and one of the guys who designed the Brexit campaign here. And I kind of like look at, you know, the worlds that they operate in, the societies they operate in, how they, how they formulate a political strategy. So the first guy I talked to is someone called Gleb Pavlovsky, who some of you may have heard of. Very intriguing guy. He was kind of a dissident in Soviet times, then went on to be one of Putin's main spin doctors. And before that, Yeltsin's spin doctor in, the, in, in 96. And this is basically how he described to me the world that he operated in. He's like, look, all our old forms of ideology had gone. Both communism, obviously it disappeared, but also kind of the, anti, the liberal anti-communism, which, which you had in Russia, which was completely dependent on communism as, as its other, really. Uh, and that sort of collapsed in 93 when, you know, the democratic reforms devastated well, a lot of factors, but including the democratic reforms devastated the country. So he said, like, you know, I couldn't do a politics based on ideas when I did election campaigns or on ideologies. All the social categories had disappeared. So the way that in the Soviet Union you used to define people like worker, intellectual, you know, this, communism had this very stratified social categories that had all gone out the window. And so he was looking kind of and kind of language had kind of become very, very strange. You know, you know, at that point, you had something called the Liberal Democratic Party in Russia, which was neither liberal nor democratic. Uh, it was kind of like nationalist monarchist, um, led by a guy called Zhirinovsky, who's very much a prototype of Trump, in the sense of this guy who just lies for fun, and it's all a show, and he, he feeds off outrage. He's, you know, when Russians see Donald Trump, they're like, oh, it's Zhirinovsky. You know, it's, this is an old, old figure for, for, for new Russian politics. And so all the language and also like, you know, like the parties were meaningless. There was a communist party, but it, it didn't do communism. I mean, it was, it was sort of social democratic orthodoxy by that point. I mean, had, all these words were completely meaningless. And he had to, in 96, he had to kind of gather up enough votes, because then you still had very genuine elections in Russia. Yeah, almost genuine. As close as you can get to genuine in Russia. <laughs> he had to gather up all those votes and get... Boris Yeltsin, who was the president at the time, to, to, to have him win the election. Now, Yeltsin was amazingly unpopular at the time. So, you know, the country was destitute, you know, mass, mass poverty and, and really depression in a way. And, and so he went along. He was like, OK, I can't do ideology. I can't talk to the social groups I used to talk to. So he started just basically picking off interest groups. People, little, you know, academics, one type of soldier, you know, a kind of bureaucrat, and trying to think, how can I unite these people who are united by nothing around some sort of new idea of the majority, the many, the people. And he'd basically find, you know, a different, completely different message for each of them. But there's an overall kind of, because you couldn't do an argument to bring these people together. These people had nothing in common economically or socially. 
he brought them around essentially what he describes as a feeling, a fairy story. And the feeling was, very, very simply, if Yeltsin, if not Yeltsin, then civil war and disaster. You know, which is quite a strong one, because a lot of people have <laughs> at least got something. And like, it was very much like, if not this, then complete, complete obliteration. So that was 96. And then he wins the election. Yeltsin wins the election. And that majority, that idea that people falls apart again. They'd only really been gathered for one moment. And they begin to start polling and starting to think, OK, how can we think about Yeltsin's successor, who's going to be Putin? And for 99, when Putin starts this kind of like, you know, inexorable rise to, to become prime minister and the president, Pavlovsky finds a new unifying idea, which he calls the left behind. So everyone who's been left behind by Yeltsin's reforms. And again, people from completely heterogeneous groups, utterly nothing in common with each other. KGB men and liberals, dissidents and, you know, old commies. Whatever, he brings them all together, as we know, Putin wins. And as I'm listening to him, I'm going, oh, my God, that sounds so much like, you know, the Trump strategy and the Brexit strategy. And he goes, yes, I very much think that what we're having here, what we had in Russia in the 90s, is kind of a prototype of what you're going through there. And the historical reasons are very simple. I mean, in Russia, you had this great crash of meaning, really, of everything. In the early 1990s, we kind of go through that with a slight time lag in 2008. I mean, everyone has their own little moment when, you know, our idea of normal, uh, of the future, of where we're heading, kind of collapses. Uh, somehow, you know, there's, it was probably a slower sort of, you know, gr crumbling with us. But financial crash is quite a good one to, to sort of play with. Um, so the other interview in the book is with the guy who, um, Tom Burrick, who was Dominic Cummings's digital, uh, head of digitals for, for the Leave campaign. And again, he's talking about the British electorate exactly the way Pavlovsky talks about the Russian electorate. Ideologies, they went out the window a while ago. In terms of like how you define society, uh, and I've talked to lots of pollsters about this, it's completely broken down. It used to be left and right, it used to be social classes in the 80s. In the 90s, we tried to define the electorate by consumer choice. You had Mondeo Man, Worcester Woman. That, and that's the time when sort of, you know, government essentially becomes you know, a technocratic process of making people richer. That falls apart, it's fallen apart quite a long time ago. So now there's attempts to define people through psychographics. Lord Cooper, who was the main post of a camera, has got this huge grid that he showed me trying to like rechart society again, certainly not fitting into any categories that, that we used to have. So Boric, who actually has to sort of build the Brexit campaign, just basically went through social media groups. Uh, what are the social media groups and how do I tie them to my little story of take back control? Nothing, very little of it had much to do with sort of like, you know, old debates about the EU. Very little of it actually, or less than I thought, had to do with immigration or with economics. So the most successful Facebook ad that he did in terms of getting people out to vote was animal rights. That's the one that really caught on. So the EU kills bulls. That's it. And again, trying to obviously create a notion of the people as an electoral trip, which since then has fallen apart again because, you know, we don't, we're just left with the people's will. We don't really know what that means. We don't really know what people voted for. Did they vote for animal rights? Should we just do a big animal rights thing now? I don't know. It's just, it's, we're kind of just left with nothing from these, from these campaigns. And it was just striking, those two interviews. I actually interviewed Boric first, and then I interviewed Pavlovsky. And, and it was a kind of sort of, it was a bit of a moment for me, seeing how, how, how they reflected each other. So yeah, that's basically the story, the main two interviews of the, of, of the thing. And so sort of my conclusion is that you know, Russia is just got to the future first. It got to the state of affairs first. It already has kind of a cadre of spin doctors, of propagandists, of political manipulators who are quite good at playing this world. And therefore, that might be part of Putin's success internationally, understanding this very fluid nature 
of of communication that is. It's so, I mean, you don't have to read the piece though. That was it. No, no. <laughs> You do okay. have to read <laughs> and buy the book. Actually, you do have to. I mean, Pavlovsky called his his organizer. I mean, it couldn't be more Orwellian. It's called the Post Factum News Agency. That's his first one. That was his first post factum. Yeah, he created a news agency first. Right, called the Post Factum uh, News Agency. And one thing with both of those guys, and also just as you're you're saying that politicians these days sort of want to be caught out lying. That they, they lie, and and so conspicuously and openly as if they as if being caught out, you say, is part of the point. And in the case of these guys, they're, telling it, they're like those magicians who tell you how they do their tricks and then do them and the tricks still work. And you're not sure, but I've just been told how this happens, but it still works. And, and that's what you feel in, 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 in this and in, in, in this political culture you're describing. So to the point where you just, well, what the hell is politics, actually? All the illusion stripping we've had to go through about the nature of, of various societies, but the, one of the things that I, I don't know what politics is anymore. If it can do this, it can lie to you, tell you it's lying to you, and still work on you. Can you tell me? <laughs> Does that even make sense as a question? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not a political scientist, and like I currently work at the LSE, so I've got that thing that happens to people when they start working in academia, where they get like, oh my God, can I say this? Do I have a methodology for this argument? Uh, is this going to be peer reviewed? I don't know. I can, just, I can just feel like sort of like my LSE colleagues sort of like looking at my answer now. I'm not, my, my background's in English lit and film, and, and I'm, the only bit of politics I'm interested in is, is propaganda. So because that's the, cl I mean, propaganda is just shit ass basically. Um, and so I feel quite comfortable with that. I'm not a political scientist. I don't, I, I don't know what politics is. I mean, the fact thing, I don't think I look at it in this one very much, but I think there's two dynamics going on. Look, if you're being like Pavlovsky, so Pavlovsky also goes into his early kind of like fake news techniques, which are, which are very funny, which recall our, our, our politics today a lot. But look, if you're just telling people what they want to hear, you know, if you're just like, if your message isn't to win the moment with an argument, but just to work out, okay, what kind, of, what kind of story do I feed the academics in order to get them to vote for me? You're not going to do facts. You're not trying to win a, a deliberative argument. You're just trying to like, you know, feed them whatever they want to hear. You know, today we have the dynamics of social media and there's been a fair amount of studies which seem to confirm some of this, that you know, people go to social media not to have a deliberative debate, especially Facebook, they go there to have, you know, to have a little ego boost from likes and shares. Uh, in order to do that, you take up the most extreme position in your little social group. And, and so you know, facts go out the window. You're just trying to say anything that pleases people. So there's that. So I think that's kind of like, you know, the political logic already suggests that facts aren't very necessary. But like facts are horrible. I mean, facts tell you you're gonna die. Facts tell you that you're like, you're over forty. Facts tell you that like you know that, that you're overweight. In my case, but but um, facts are not nice. I mean, why would we want facts? So so the idea that politi politicians would give us facts is kind of surreal. I think facts are just quite useful if you're proving something. I mean, we don't, we don't have a fact-free conversation when it comes to building a bridge. You know, suddenly everyone's really, really precise about all their measurements. You know? It's not like you don't have any kind of bullshitting around that. So if you're trying to prove something, trying to build something, then facts are very necessary to prove that you're getting there. But if you're a society which has no idea of the future anymore, whether it's Russia in the 1990s or now, or increasingly us, then, then politics isn't about proving things anymore. It's not about an evidence-based argument, which you then win or lose. Uh, it's about a whole host of other things. And I think there's some sort of libidinal release in saying fuck off to facts. I think maybe at some very pretentious level, 
and scary saying this in the LRB bookshop where half the people here are psychotherapists. I mean, some sort of release from death, I think. So like, you know, the biggest fact is death. And so Zhirinovsky in the 1990s, there was a pleasure in this. Oh my God, he just said that. Wow, nothing matters. And I think with Trump, there's a kind of a punk-like release from factuality, which is, which comes, which, which you know, gives you some sort of pleasure. And you said you came, you came, you came to Russia because you wanted to go to a place where words have meaning. You showed up here, turned out our words didn't have uh, any meaning. But I mean, you do say you're not a political scientist and your training is in literature. And the training. Tra- and your, training. <laughs> uh, what, 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 oh, is that the wrong word? Words have no meaning. I went clubbing four years. I quoted Chris David. Not okay, okay. It was so easy. <laughs> OK. OK. <laughs> but uh, you're, I mean, you're, and you're very much a writer. But a group of people you could say are au fait with the slippery nature of words, are writers, are creative, are, are creative people. I mean, the, the, the notion that words are, non, are not definite and not stable is very much theirs. And you say that in Russia, that the artists got there first, understood the new political reality first, and then went into politics. Can you talk about this extraordinary yes. art movement? So there's several, and that's... That's very much in the, in the grants piece as well. Because it is a grants piece. I was like, okay, I've done the politics bit. I'm just to shove some art into here now, or else it's too much of a, of a kind of, you know, just a, a prospect piece or something. I think artists do generally, actually. Uh, and actually, I start my time in Russia with sort of talking about poets who I, and writers and an artistic movement, uh, which I feel, even though it's very rooted in Russia, is now so relevant here. Um, and I've talked about this, I just haven't written enough about this yet, but there's actually someone here who's a huge expert on this, who's a Nobby Zinnick, but that's the Moscow conceptualists, who already in the 70s had already kind of said, okay, communism is bollocks, let's try to actually think of a whole new language within which to experience ourselves and truth. There was a great Kabakov exhibition at the Tate recently, which I thought really brought us into that very well. So, so it's the Moscow conceptualists who, who I start with, already in the late 80s, talking about the disappearance of the self, or doing it in very beautiful ways. I mean, one of the people that I write about is uh, Lev Rubinstein, who's a sort of a cult figure in the Moscow conceptualist scene. I mean, he's a performance artist, and just reading the stuff kind of misses the point, but he kind of stands, or would stand, this is an old performance of his, with kind of a, a catalogue of, of library cards, which are you know, the ultimate symbol of order, meaning, and kind of have like, like little cryptic things written on them, little paradoxes, and sort of take them and read them and throw them out into the audience. I suppose one way to interpret that was sort of the end of any kind of, you know, uh, meaning in the Soviet Union tied to, you know, you know uh, institutions and, and, and rational thinking. So they're really kind of anticipating this great breakdown. And there's a very useful essay by Boris Groys, who's a, who's a Russian art critic, who's lived with the Moscow conceptualists for a long time. So understands them quite well. It's called the Big Tsimtsum. He borrows a term from Jewish Kabbalah, talking about this moment when all meaning is pulled out of life. And he talks about sort of, the early 90s in Russia is this moment when all, all meaning is pulled out of everything. So words don't mean anything anymore. Concepts don't mean anything anymore. And he talks about the reactions of different, different writers. So one reaction is Rubinstein. Uh, another one, which I think is very relevant, is actionism. So, because there's no language left, because there's you know, no way to kind of articulate things, there was a big boom in performance art. And one of the famous ones was, was Oleg Kulik, who invented this early 90s image, really, which summed up... <laughs> early 90s Russian man called the man dog, where he literally just went on awful hands and knees for like weeks on end or longer. I don't know. A long time. And just pretended to be a dog. I just growled at people in the gallery and bit them, I think. I think there was some biting involved. But, you know, 
again, it was kind of like, you know, there are no words left, there are no arguments, all we have is, is action and growling. And Putin is, is essentially an actionist. I mean, when he arrives on the scene, I mean, the words are relevant, all matters is the action man poses, you know, it's, it's pure, it's, it's pure action with very, very unclear sort of ideas. I mean, there's feelings, Russia gets up on its knees, make Russia great again, but not really kind of ideology. So, so yes, yeah, so I talk a lot about the artists and stuff. And they entered, they went into politics. Exactly, that's where I was trying to get to. Exactly, exactly. Well, and, and in different ways. So Pavlovsky, who we mentioned, he created this PR agency, which pulled in quite a lot of artists and people from that circle. A lot of them, I have to say, did leave again because they were so disgusted by, by what he was doing, but certainly drawn towards it. Most famously, though, Marat Gelman, who was really the, the galleryist who created modern art in Russia. And since he created the first galleries, so people weren't just doing you know, these exhibitions in their rooms or in their flats, they you know, actually have a, a real commercial space to do them in, or one of the first people to do that. So he then moves very strongly into politics. And he didn't think, uh, and becomes one of the main spin doctors and, and, and very, very senior in that kind of, in that system. And he talked quite openly about how politics is now art. I think there was even an exhibition at his 96, quite a famous one, where politics, we called politics as art or art as politics. But anyway, so you had these, I mean, imagine, imagine one of the Saatchi brothers going into politics. I mean, how weird would that be? No, but it's that kind of thing. One of the odd things in reading essays, I feel you, you are telling us all is chaos. That, I mean, the all is chaos, that the, the, there's, no, there's no facts, there's no meaning, there's no, nothing, there's nothing to anchor yourself on. And that what we had previously sort of thought was stability was just a kind of sense of self derived from opposition to, to, to another. And then the moment that other collapses, we collapse. So then one of the things you hint at is that the reason perhaps that we're now, that now Putin is on, is grinning at you from every, <laughs> every newsstand. And the reason we believe Russia is behind everything and everyone at the moment is because you think we're nostalgic for a kind of Cold War idea that Russia is the great other. The, I mean, you were saying something very interesting down there about the role that Russia plays in our fantasy lives. Could you talk about that? Yeah, look, there's a bunch of things going on. I mean, yeah, so very much the sort of the pattern that I explore in the piece is very much, you know, Russia collapses first. So many about, of our ideas around democracy and freedom had really been, I mean, they've developed over many years, but they really kind of found form and institutional form during the Cold War. And so when Russia collapsed, it's only a matter of time before you know, all the other stuff that was uh, constructed in opposition to it sort of collapses as well. So that, I think that's going on. And then I'm really talking about quite a specific circle of people, sort of you know, East Coast liberals in America, who are my friends, who, who the last time probably had... I hate the word nostalgic, I mean, because that's just something completely different. But the last time there was clear meaning was kind of the end of the Cold War when you know, all these kind of things came together and, and freedom still meant something and a, a lot of these words still meant something. And, and, and so there's, yes, there's sort of a, you know, instinctively one turns to that moment when there was still another which, which made sense of that. So, so I think there's a little bit of that going on. I don't think that's the whole story at all. I think that's a very specific thing to, you know, the New Yorker, the New Republic, that kind of circle of people. But, but I don't think that's by far, and you know, there's, a lot more other, there's, a, there's a lot of other things going on. So, so there's a bit of that. But I think Russia, I mean, there's something else going on, which is, which is Russia is just quite good. That's what we're talking about downstairs. I mean, how many countries or how many cultures, political <coughs> cultures, culture cultures, can capture the imagination, capture the political imagination? 
And Russia is quite good at that. I mean, for all the stuff that Russia is rubbish at, like building a fair society, et cetera, et cetera, um, <laughs> what, 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 what it's always been good at is grabbing the imagination. So you have that in 1917, you have it in the Cold War. And now again, this kind of essentially, you know, in many ways, very weak and flimsy country has, you know, it's not just our, it's not just sort of our paranoias, has managed to capture the moment and articulate it through its political spokespeople, through its media, and so on and so forth. So, um, and it's one about cynicism, distrust, you know, it's that, that whole sense that, that so many other politicians are now, are now sort of lapping up. So I think, you know, I, I wouldn't, well, the one thing Russia is very good at is culture in its broader sense. And, and I think there's a bit of that going on. Um, uh, yeah. What do you mean by culture in its broader sense? Well, well, not just high art. I mean, just, you know, you know, the way we think of ourselves and how we make sense of ourselves, all that stuff. But, I mean, am I, but somehow the, the messages I seem to be getting when, when I read whatever it is that I read, and that is that, is that somehow behind everything is Russia. So no matter where I, I look to the left or the right, or I look to across the Atlantic or, or, or here, I'm sort of in social media, and somehow the narrative I'm getting is that somehow Putin's decided that I'm looking at this. So Putin's telling me that that's somehow, am, am, I, am I getting that? Who's, who's told me that? And, and oh, no, no, but I mean, I mean that there are Russian information campaigns which do back different sides and different arguments. So that there's a bit, I mean, there's, there's plenty of empirical stuff to back that up. But no, I'm actually thinking about you now. It's fine. I've done my best. Yeah, that was a shame. So you're Jewish. You've written quite a lot of books about being Jewish. I'm not. No, I am. But um, (laughs) so, like, you know, other people think the Jews are behind everything. So I guess Mm. if you're Jewish, you can't think the Jews are behind everything. So is Russia your is is Russia like your Jew your Israel? Russia is Russia is your Israel. No. So one of the one of the uh, oh. We shouldn't talk about this. <laughs> well, one of the one of the forms that Jewish paranoia takes, or the form I uh-huh. say that Jewish paranoia takes, is is a very specific form where Jews are worried that other people are worried about Jews. So, so Jews are paranoid that other people might be paranoid about Jews. So okay. they think you might have a conspiracy theory about me, and I have that conspiracy theory about you. So, so, so it's a very kind of very strange sort of mirroring that goes that goes on, and and and. In the case of uh, um, Russia, it's sort of odd to find myself sort of. It is odd for me to find myself yet yeah, thinking, oh, isn't isn't there? <laughs> isn't I mean to really having to sort of seeing the shape of a conspiracy theory in my mind mm. rather than suspecting that. I, so it, it, so I think I have been interpreting it through that lens of. I'm very, I mean, because one of the things you say, and one of the things you say in your book is, at the end of ideology, and you're quoting someone who you say, at the end of ideology is conspiracy theory, and because ideology's ended, Mm, all we now have are conspiracy theories. And I sensed in your um, in in your essay that nobody is immune actually from Mm. from from this culture of conspiracism. We're all sort of playing a part in it. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. Okay, I have to say, firstly, that's not my quote. That's from the, uh, the really magical political philosopher, Ivan Krastev, who's like Zizek, but without the shit bits. Um, <laughs> is, um, we can decide what they are later. But Ivan Krastev is brilliant and ridiculously unknown in Britain, really one of the sharpest minds in the world, better known in the US. So that's, very, that's his phrase. And actually, his interview with Pavlovsky feeds into the book quite well. There's a lot of it here, there. I mean, there's t- t- two ways... To, two things that come to mind. I mean, firstly, I mean, there's, there's, and this is a very Russian thing, and we see it now in America, and 
sadly, I think it's going to come here soon as well, which is like, so in Russia, I mean, for quite a long time, conspiracies use this political strategy. Now, you could say that the whole of Marxism is a conspiracy theory. There's a dangerous bourgeois behind everything. And it's obviously Nazism is heavy on conspiracy theories. But they always had conspiracy theories which ended somewhere. There are conspiracy theories which buttressed an ideology. Well, what I saw in Russia, and I'm sure it's the same in other bits of the world, which are equally chaotic, uh, is where leaders use a sense that you will never know the truth about anything. Yeah? That we live in a world, a matroshka of conspiracies inside conspiracies, these Baroque kind of many-layered philo pastries of conspiracies. And um, the main, I mean, the, the tagline of the main Russian sort of political TV presenter is... Um, which means a coincidence. I don't think so. And he doesn't... Alex Jones is fringe. This guy's got the 7 p.m. slot. He's got like the David Letterman or whatever. <laughs> he's got, he's got the, the Paxman slot. Uh, and he does these beautiful Baroque conspiracies where really it's not about them. It's not really clear that who them and us are, just that there's lots of hidden hands, inside hidden hands. I mean, the example I always like to give in Russia when sort of like protests start against Putin, there's always like the bollocks conspiracy that... The, the TV gives, oh, they're all CIA. <laughs> a lot of people could like that, you know. Yes, someone else is coming to help us. The main one they do, or the, the subtle one they do, is actually these protesters, these opposition leaders, they're all part of the Kremlin. Actually, they're ours. <laughs> and that just defeats your faith in anything. Because if everything is a hidden hand inside a hidden hand, then you can't change anything. And that's mm -hmm. the message. You can't change anything. Therefore, you need a strong Putin or a strong Trump mm -hmm. to come and save you. It's a very subtle psychological thing, which is very addictive because conspiracies are rather pleasant. I mean, it means it's not your fault that you messed up your life, that your wife left you, that you have a slight drinking problem. It's all a conspiracy. So, so, so there's a great kind of like, you know, there's a little sweetener that's given. But the ultimate message is only a strong hand can lead us through this murky world. So if, and Vucic does this in Serbia, a lot of the, Orban obviously does this a lot. Uh, so, so a lot of Adrigan, it goes on and on. I mean, conspiracy is not part of the ideology. Conspiracy is the idiom. It's not an ideology. It's the language within which everything works. And it's very, very insidious. It means you can't trust anything. I mean, in Soviet times, you know, people had an idea that over there is normalness, over there is the West. And, you know, they're different and they tell the truth. The nonstop conspiracy theories kind of like undermine your sense that there's anything out there that's any difference to what you have here. So, so there's that bit. And there's another bit I've forgotten. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> the other bit was very interesting. Yeah, the other bit was great. They, they, I mean, one conspiracy theory that I suppose I, I've been encountering. Oh, I thought I remembered it. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a Krastev. So Ivan Krastev looked at, and I don't know, he's one of these, a bit like Zizek, you know, he says something and you're not sure, did you do qualitative and quantitative analysis on it or did you just dream this up? But he's very good at doing that because he's, he's like, he's an academic. Um, so basically he looked into what is the main glue that bounds the... Kishinsky vote in Poland. You know what I mean? This is the nationalists, um, you know, hysterical conspiracy nutty party in Poland. So what's the main glue that, 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 that connects all their voters? And it wasn't actually nationalism. It wasn't history. It was a conspiracy theory that the Smolensk, oh, now getting into Polish conspiracy theories, okay, that, that, <laughs> that basically there was a plane crash a few years ago in Poland where a lot of politicians died. And there's a conspiracy theory that it was created by, organized by Donald Tusk, who's now head of the EU, you may have heard of him, and, and the Russians together in order to kill these politicians. It's a batshit crazy conspiracy theory, but it's the one that binds all these people together rather than any idea. And conspiracy is very, very useful. If you're, if you're in a politics where there are no arguments, then conspiracy becomes the them and us. You can't argue with a conspiracy. I mean, have you tried 
arguing with conspiracy-driven people. It's, it's impossible uh, because it's not about that. It's about identity. And, and conspiracy is very useful at sort of like, you know, circling your wagons around a very, very disparate group of people. You know, we can think of other examples. So, so conspiracy also becomes a very necessary tactic of, of dividing sort of the, the limits of the people and the majority that, that you want to define. Does it... I mean, the, the idea that, I mean, and obviously social media plays a part in, in, in this and the dissemination of these conspiracy theories, and, and, and you're looking at it a little bit in your uh, piece as well. But one of the theories I suppose I've heard is that whenever we sort of participate on, in our sort of online lives, we're somehow feeding into a kind of, it doesn't really matter what we say or what our, what our ideas are, or who we're talking to, we're somehow feeding something much lar larger than us that is aiding... A, have you heard this conspiracy theory? <laughs> or is um, that somehow all participation in online life is feeding this, is feeding this larger politics of conspiracy and reaction and identity bolstering, so that somehow... It's not the place to go to say anything at all. What, what would you... Yeah, I mean, I mean, quoting the studies that, that, that I mentioned earlier, that you go online in order to sort of like, you know, call it virtue signaling or to take your place within a certain group. You know, that group is going to have boundaries, so it'll create another and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so no, I think social media, the way the algorithms have been built at the moment, encourages polarizing behavior. I think, I think that's probably true. I mean, a lot of the work we do at the LSE is thinking about how we can change that. And, you know, I think I probably think we need some sort of public ownership of, of the algorithm. So actually incentivize a different kind of behavior online. And all the little quick fixes that we're doing at the moment won't change until we create a public service algorithm controlled <laughs> by me. No, uh, uh, you know, that's the quite problem who controls it, but certainly better than, 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 than uh, YouTube controlling it. Actually, YouTube said yesterday said, yes, after years of denial, yeah, yeah, after yeah, years yeah, of denial, yeah. uh, that, oh, actually, we're not going to prioritize uh, conspiratorial content. Uh, there's a great whistleblower from Google called Guillaume Chazelot who talks about how the idea of the self that Google created in YouTube, their idea of what you want when they give you more and more and more material on YouTube, is kind of based on the lowest denominator of what people consume. And the lowest, simplest, most scrumptious thing that people consume are, sadly, conspiracy theories. And there's a lot of them on, on the internet because they can't be on normal TV usually, so they've got to go there. So there's bulk of conspiracies. They're quite tasty. People eat them one after the other. And so, like, you know, if you watch one thing about you know, something in Syria, for example, you'll then get, like, you know, 30 conspiracy theories one after the, after the other, which drives you to a more radical position. I mean, that, that, I mean, that was inbuilt in the algorithm. That's the way YouTube designed the algorithm. And Shazlow tells this great story saying, I can change this. I can design a different algorithm. Uh, and they're like, we're not interested. They're like, no, no, but I have. Look, look, you can actually do an algorithm which will give people a balanced mix of material around the subject. They won't just end up looking at conspiracy theories. People just stare at him at YouTube going, why? This is what people consume. So after a lot of lobbying and a lot of talk, I mean, lobbying in the sense of public awareness raising, uh, YouTube have shifted on that. Which uh, is huge. Right? Well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, all these companies, because we interact with them quite a lot, um, that's what I look at, the LSE. I, I look at sort of you know, media and propaganda and stuff. Uh, they, they, they lie. It's actually quite shocking. They always say stuff and promise to do stuff. And then lie. So maybe that's the Russia stuff. So when Facebook were asked by the parliamentary committee, oh, you know, can we see the Russia ads in, during, during, in British politics after we'd found out there were quite a few in American politics? And uh, Facebook came back going, well, there was only a spend of uh, 2p. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Basically, they only gave the amount that 
had been paid for by Russian PR companies. They hadn't done all the stuff that hadn't been paid for, mm-hmm. which is, of course, most of it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so because they're being so, maybe part of the sense that Russia is everywhere is just because the tech companies were caught in such a bad place that they've kind of been dissimulating. You know, first they said there was absolutely nothing. And they said, well, there's a little bit. And they're like, oh, we just found some more. So, so maybe it's the tech company's fault that you're paranoid. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I, know it's a, I do want to blame someone else. But it is, it is true that... Um, uh, um, <laughs> I know it, is, it is true that, I mean, you use the word polarised. One of my favourite sentences in your essay is that you say, you know, it's not just time of conspiracy theory, fake news, alternative facts. It's time of polarisation where we... Uh, what, what is the line? It's a brilliant line. We say... Um, um, Can't talk to each other like we're yeah, spitting. Yes, yes. I actually wanted to re yeah, that one. I yeah, thought it was a really bad oh, one. Oh, it's such and a good line. Oh, it's it's the like, sort oh. of polarize. We've reached the sort of polarization where people can't talk to each other anymore without spitting. Yeah, that's a bad line. <laughs> I, I think that that's a bad. great. Well, that's a bad line. I realised that I've become socially phobic because I might spit at someone. Really? <laughs> but no, I realised that I have. Um, I think it's worse. That I'm finding the social world more frightening than I ever had before. And on the one hand, I need it more than ever before because I do need solidarity. I, I need to feel that I'm not completely isolated and alone. But it's a weird way to approach the world. I never mm. used to go into the world looking for solidarity more than anything else. Yeah. And I'm frightened of pe- I'm, I'm frightened of my own politics and I'm frightened of other people's politics. And I'm frightened I'm gonna s- that the, if we were to talk about politics, I'd, we'd wind up spitting. I do want some hope and I'm not getting, there, there are little hints of maybe where you could look, they're very dark hints for, of hope in your essay. But one thing you do say is, for a long time now, Russians have said, I just have to trust, we, I don't believe the words of anyone, I don't believe the facts, I don't believe anything. I have to go with my feelings and make my way through this fog mm. of disinformation. Yeah. You say, but how are they, how, what is the survival strategy yeah. for this? That's, yeah, so that's definitely, that's something that I would, I would hear in Russia in the early 2000s. I heard it in Donbass in the war a lot. Um, and then now I hear it from my upper middle class cousin in New Jersey, from people in Peterborough. The same set, it's literally word for word. There's so much information, disinformation out there. I don't trust anything. I'll go with my feelings, which is I mean, remarkable to hear that in, in, in the West. So no, I mean, it, things have got worse since, since the polarization bit. Polarization is we're still kind of talking to each other. So I was in D.C. during the, the Kavanaugh nomination. I don't know if you saw this. This, is a, this, this judge was being made into a, a grand judge, a big judge. Grand wizard. No, <laughs> a, a big judge, big judge, a big judge. And there was a lot of fighting about it because a woman came forward, very credible witness, saying this guy had sexually harassed me when we were students. But this was like 40 years ago, impossible to prove. And D.C. just became this kind of like, you know, this mad shouting match. But they weren't shouting at each other, you know. It had got so bad they were like shouting at trees <laughs> and shouting at glasses. <laughs> shouting at each other, still, like, there's still kind of a, some sort of face-to-face there. It was just like the extent to which the two sides, and there are more than two sides, just kind of like had just completely different tunnels they were looking down. So the, the, the kind of liberal tunnel was like, this is a sign of the patriarchy winning. And everything very sensibly was analysed through that. And then... The conservatives, or what used to be conservatives I met, were saying, this is all a case of um, a a liberal media attack, which it was. It was like, you know, it was actually engineered in a very, very sort of cynical way by by some media players. Both those things were kind of true, but everyone was stuck in their own tunnel, and they weren't even just shouting at each other. They were just shouting into sort of an empty space past each other. And DC feels like that as well. I mean, bits of Westminster do sometimes, but less so. 
you know, people just like looking at trees in the middle of kind of default <laughs> circle. I think it was the Russians. You got the Russians behind there? I don't follow the shadow. The Russians? The Russians? Um, uh, and, and so on and so forth. And, and actually, this reminds me a lot of Russian cinema of the 1990s. One of the, one of the <laughs> sad things that never, never happened here was Kura Muratova, who is my favorite film director, who was a great Russian film director from the 60s, but in the 90s, she went from doing very subtle psychological realism to doing these kind of absurdist landscapes of people just wandering around a broken Russia talking absurdist crap or just shouting at, the, at passing trees. And it completely captured the sense of a nation that and completely lost the language to talk about itself in and to talk to each other in. And that's what DC films feels like. Washington DC, I should say. Uh, London can feel like that, but, but you know, not, not, not quite there yet. It's got worse than polarization now. And actually there's these Thank two you. blobs. You know, it's kind of like complete meltdown. But listen, this could well be a, a restorative process. Maybe this is what you go through. You go through complete meltdown. All the old kind of paradigms and categories fall away. All the language falls away. And, and then a new one is built. And, and maybe that's just the process one, one goes through. So maybe it's not that frightening. I mean, the one thing in the 19, in 1990s Russia was, was also late 1990s Russia when I started going there and, and early 2000s. There was still the sense of incredible potential that we could make sense of the world anew. And of course, if one, if one sort of takes sort of Boris Groys's metaphor about the big tum tum, you know, God removing meaning from the world, if you sort of follow that story in, 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 in the really annoying bit of Jewish mysticism, which I find really, really infuriating, then that's seen as a good thing. That's the only way that kind of the earth can shatter and then people can give new meaning to, to the broken world and all those kind of slightly pretentious, woolly things. So, so maybe it's just a process of renewal. Maybe it's fine. I mean, the scary thing that in Russia it does lead to Putin. In Italy, it's leading to Salvini. In Eastern Europe, it's led to Orbanism. In the Balkans, it's kind of like Vucic. Yeah, um, there are some good things, though. <laughs> so you just gave us the sort of uh, metaphysical hope that this, you know, out of chaos crisis breeds opportunity, out of chaos becomes a rebirth. The, the weird sort of darker sort of hint of hope you give in the essay, and then I'll go to questions, because it's so sort of uh, dark, is that polling based on getting people's votes on the basis of micromanaging their advertising is so expensive that we might go back to the politics of big ideas. Yes, this, <laughs> this, this, this is the most, the most hopeful thing. That you're quite right. So I asked Pavlovsky at the end, what's the future? Do we go back to big ideology? He's like, no, that was only, you know, big ideology was possible in the age of big media apart from anything else. Now you'll have these little internet hysterias and tribes and this kind of like chaos and, and, uh, and actually he says they'll be self-generated. I mean, you won't even need spin doctors. People just drive themselves into frenzies. And then I asked Tom Borick, who's the guy who ran the, the Leaf campaign, what do you think? He's like, well, actually, from a kind of like, you know, campaign, people really care about money and politicians care about money. It's much cheaper to have a single message campaign. Uh, he, he think, I mean, he, he thinks that, 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 you know, the current Labour leadership will win because they can potentially squeeze their kind of ideas into quite, quite a simple message and quite a simple idea. So, so, yeah, he thinks just, you know, and as Britain gets poorer... You know, it'll be the only way. We'll have to revert to big ideas and debate because of our poverty. Cheaper, because yeah, because of cheaper. our poverty. So poverty will save us. Yeah, thanks. Um, we just won't be able to I, I, and I, So I think, I, sorry if I went on too long, I, I somehow missed the, might have missed the wink. I'm, go, I'm now going to uh, invite questions to our esteemed guest. So this is a question about conspiracy. And if all we have left are conspiracy theories, um, and you said also poverty. Does economics have anything to provide as either an alternative conspiracy theory, or is it actually the domain where people stop 
feeling conspiratorial. Can 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 we find a solution to conspiracy theory? You know what I always like to do when I do these. I like to take oh, a lot oh, of please. questions. A lot oh, right. of questions. Oh, okay. Well, I, it's because I, I need prize, to think about I that. I don't that know. questionnaire, but okay. <laughs> so we'll yeah. take three. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to take back to the um, specific sort of Russian government attempts to sow um, sort of gaslighting, as you, you were describing, both on a domestic level and, and um, in their foreign policy as well, sort of deliberate attempts rather than a kind of wider cultural trend. Um, I wondered if it's, you think it's possible, given that you're just trying to sow uncertainty and, and trying to put out that anything could happen, is it possible to do that badly? Um, I thought particularly looking at the, um, the two hapless people being interviewed about Salisbury, Spire, and then, you know, and, and when I remember reading that and seeing the reaction and thinking some people had this, you know, they, their theory was, oh, they did this badly on purpose because then they could sort of mock you you know they would show that it, they could act with impunity and then other people were like surely it couldn't be on purpose it was so bad and then you heard that the head of the secret service sort of he died in the other a heart attack i think a few months later and, and you know it just is it if given that the idea is to make people entirely uncertain can you ever get it wrong or <laughs> it's uh, again about the uh, conspiracy theories the links between conspiracy and identity it reminded me devora in your book about how you said that um <clears throat> Uh, conspiracies are part of the paranoia of the claims of identity politics, like if you've been discriminated against on the basis of your identity, you can't prove it, but the idea is out there. And I was wondering, um, if the future comes to Russia first, um, what role does identity politics and the way we understand it in the West play there? Because this is anecdotal, but I've taught a few Russian students at my university over the years, and identity politics always seems a blind spot to them, at least in a particularly British context. They can't really seem to get their head around, um, you know, reparations for slavery, that sort of thing. Perhaps mm. that's a specific cultural blind spot. But mm. um, that's very yes. Okay. The question about economics—I don't know if you mean economics, kind of economic theory and Marx, and or, or whether you mean just really practical budget stuff. So, so that would I think be the way. So, for example, there was a great piece. There was a long, almost unreadable but fascinating piece by Dominic Cummings the actual head of the Leave campaign after Brexit in the London Review of Books. No, in The Spectator. And, um, <laughs> he, um, uh, and, and he, wrote about, like, he wrote about a lot of things, including mentioning my book. Um, weirdly. But, but he wrote about how easy it was to play the media during Brexit. Instead of hard questions, which would, one could then monitor and track, to the situation that we have now and really peg uh, politicians to them, you know, our journalism went into this adversarial mode, and basically all he had to do, he said, was to give us a stupid story about leadership battles. So would Gove or Boris become leader of the Tory party? And that became the story because we're fascinated by these, you know, air, like weird fairy stories. And, and then he's like, you know, journalism has to change. It has to stop doing this adversarial stuff and <coughs> think, that's, think that's journalism. And actually have to peg people to very, very specific pledges and then chain them to those pledges, which modern apps and social media would allow you to do. You would be able to, to kind of, you know, track promises on spending or, or on budgets. So, so you'd be able to follow politicians along. And, and he saw that as the future of journalism. So yes, I think so. I think, so we're thinking about this a lot in the LSE. How can we transform journalism so that it encourages and inspires a factor of a conversation? And the main way we think you do that is something called constructive news. 
So instead of talking about identity and belief and all this la 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 stuff, you get, okay, what are you going to do specifically about the situation? And that forces people into a much more fact-driven conversation, which has an element of the future built in, which has evidence built in, and you force people into that. There's a lot of reluctance by a lot of sort of media to do that because that's not what, if you're a journalist, you've been brought up to do. That's kind of a new kind of job. So, so, so that would definitely be the way forward. But that's a very micro solution, I've got to say. I don't think sort of constructive journalism will save the world. But I think it's a, it's a movement that started in Denmark. There's quite a lot of theory showing that it works. I think that's, that's a, way, a way forward. It would mean a very different kind of news night. You know, instead of like, you know, Emily Maitlis gabbing like one pillock from the left and one pillock from the right, even though left and right don't really work anymore. And then, you know, they shout at each other for a bit. And then she goes, that's all we have time for. We actually have something much more strategic. And that, that's probably a way, a way forward. About identity. So Pavlovsky would completely agree with Chantal Mouffe or Laclau that identity is a political construction. He'd actually go further. He says it's an electoral construction. You construct identity for politics. He says it quite openly. I created the Putin majority. You know, now we're like integrating the many or the people, whichever way, whichever project you're in with. So, so in that sense, it's once you run out of ideas and once old stable social identities has collapsed, all of politics becomes around identity and the construction of identity for a, a very narrow political goal. So in that sense, Russia is way ahead on it. And they were reinventing language. I mean, they were like, hey, what does liberal mean? What does democratic mean? You know, they have ideas like sovereign democracy. Let's make that up. They had, you know, they essentially had to, and in Russia, it's very hard because you've got the Soviet legacy, Russian nationalism, Russia as an empire, all these balls you're juggling, which you have to put into an idea of the bolshevstvo, the many. And somehow that's got to float and make sense to people. Uh, it's a very difficult act to do. So, so in that sense, Russia, you know, identity politics in that sense, becomes all of politics when ideas stop. Well, you're talking about kind of that, that kind of, you mean sort of like grievances and that kind of identity politics? Yeah, Russia has a few blind spots on that. It's quite remarkable. I mean, a friend of mine, Oliver Bulo, who's written this amazing book, Moneyland, which you all should read, or it's going to win the Orwell Prize and everything else. It's about money laundering. But anyway, he wrote another book about the Russian South. So, so the Caucasus and up from the Caucasus, Sochi, that kind of area which was, you know, there was essentially an ethnic cleansing there in the, in the 18th and 19th century. All the people who lived there were just thrown out. Nobody in Russia knows about this. I mean, they just don't know about it. They're like, who do you think used to live here? They're like, uh, uh. <laughs> you know, it just, there's absolutely no education, no books. There's nothing about it. It's just complete amnesia. So, yeah. And on the other hand, look, identity politics. Okay, no, let, let's flip that completely. There's an incredible book called The Soviet Union, The First Affirmative Action Empire, because that's exactly what it was. It was, you know... Post-Russian Empire, the Soviet Union created all these, you know, ethnic identities who were going to like, you know, together were emerging from uh, <coughs> colonial slavery to the to the wonderfulness of the all-Soviet. They're very infantilized identities. It's a great book. I've forgotten the name of the historian. The first uh, affirmative action empire. So the Soviet Union is a prototype of, of identity politics. So it's complicated. You know, that's the nice thing about Russia. It breaks down, breaks down all these little categories we had. Oh. Yeah. Oh, the Skripal thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, we don't know. Uh, we don't know who is reporting on who, whether it was one agency dobbing on another agency. A lot of the times what we see as Russia as a facade is actually different agencies messing with each other and tripping each other up and making each other look bad in front of Putin. So we don't know what the game there was. But certainly at the end, when they do this interview with them, yeah, obviously that's a fuck off. Like, we will come to your country. We'll kill your people. We wouldn't even kill him. What's your problem? And, you know, that was clearly already like, 
But that's kind of what you do sometimes when you've been really bad. You're like, oh, so what? You know, I've got nine-year-olds. It's the nine-year-old strategy yeah. at hand. Yeah, I'll do it again here. <laughs> but uh, yes, we don't, it's, it's hard to read because we don't see the, the intra-agency wall. I'm going to come over all um, pessimistic for a moment because um, it's a very, very old idea going back to the earliest um, political philosophy in ancient times that um, democracy is bound to end up in um, tyranny because it appeals to the uh, lower and lowest common denominators. And of course, you know, we see this a lot now and we see uh, the generic uh, rubbish on social media, etc., etc. And, um, you know, even now you can see China sort of uh, referring to, well, look at these democracies and what they're like and how wonderful totalitarianism is. It's a question of whether actually we can expect any better than um, something not very nice resulting from this um, in the near future after a short sort of history for democracy. Um, well, it may be slightly flippant, but is, Peter, there, there's such a... That can usefully talk about such a thing as the Russian soul, and if you could... What news would it have for us? What, what sort of survival strategies might we be able to, you know, as a sort of long-term reaction to various kinds of uncertainty, propaganda, and all the things you've been talking about? Is can we, what can we take from... Sorry, so it's another economic question, apologies. Um, both the 90s in Russia and post-2008 in the West have been sort of periods marked by huge rises in economic inequality. Has that, to some extent, fed into those sort of periods of kind of not knowing what to believe in, sense of being left behind, sense of being system stacked against me. Is that part of it? That's my question. So you can take Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's just blatantly. I mean, I don't think that's like a, like, you know, you don't think you need Piketty for that. It's just like, you know, there's a lot, it's just your everyday reality in Russia in the 90s, early 2000s was, was jealousy. Especially in a country where being rich for so long had not been celebrated. And, and jealousy was one of the main motivators. So I think, I think that's just so obvious. I mean, you don't, you know, you see poor people walking down the street, looking at other people in big cars and they're angry. I mean, it's not, you know, I don't think you need sophisticated analysis to, to show, that, show that's, that's the way. Yeah, because what conspiracy theory then becomes a comfort. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I've never actually, that would be fascinating to look at, whether in a, where there is some sort of like, you know, even correlation between levels of inequality and conspiracy theories. That would be very, very interesting um, to, to look at. I've never studied that. We want to launch a very big project next year about conspiracy theories, so that would be a fascinating thing to look at. One would think so. Your one's working hypothesis would be yes, but I I don't know. Um, What else was there? About, oh, democracy? You answer that. Me? Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Can I I give a little answer to one of the... um, One of the... Question in in this book that you're going to buy, the uh, special issue of Granta, uh, which has this long interview with Adam Phillips, psychoanalyst. One of the things that came up was the idea that perhaps one of the problems about democracy is that it forces us to meet more parts of ourselves than we can bear. I mean, we we're forced to be in relationship to so many different ideas, so many different types of people, and so there's a kind of reaction to that where we try and narrow down our mind and we narrow down our options. But really, to be in a democracy and to be aware of all, and we've never been more aware of more points of view because of the online life as well, is to be in some ways dealing with our own complexity as much as a complex world. And so one of the arguments then is that we need to develop 
a much better language for our humanity, and we need to develop a much better way of dealing with our own ambivalences, and we need to we need to pay more attention to art and artists because they're better at that than politicians are. So yeah, democracy is a real conundrum, but it means we have to do better in other realms in order to meet its demands, rather than closing down the project altogether. I, I, I'm going to ignore the question about the Russian soul. Uh, <laughs> but that was his question. No, no, what can we learn from the Russian soul? Oh, right. That was the actual question. Yeah, the, 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 Russian, the, the Russian soul is like, because there are so many unknowns and un, self-unexplored in, 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 in Russian history, Russian soul just stands for all those things. So it's like, you know, it's where we place the unconscious. Oh, it's the Russian soul. It's like, oh, it's your unconscious. It's a way of saying, oh, we can't describe it, so let's just call it that. Uh, there's also some weird theories about, you know, it's used as an excuse for exceptionalism, which is always a very dangerous thing. So there's, oh, women don't need rights because of the Russian soul. And, oh, we don't need real elections because of the Russian soul. <laughs> and then it's kind of like, and then it's reinforced by a certain type of critic in the West. And, oh, uh, awful. Uh, so, so let's avoid that stuff about the Russian soul. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, how, what can we learn from the Russian experience? So I actually have a grant, of, not, not in the grant of thing, but on the grant of website because I sometimes do web pieces for them as well, uh, all about this. And it was, it's a conversation between me and Zinov Zinnik uh, at Dash Arts in, 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 uh, in London, thinking about what can we learn from the experience of the Moscow conceptualists now. I can't remember the conclusion we came to, but it's in the piece. But they're all, they're all dealing, Moscow conceptualists are dealing with this thing that, look, the language that's out there doesn't work anymore. They're, they're, this is late Soviet language. It's gone. We can satirize that language. That's one way of surviving. And satire is one way of kind of grappling. With that, but like when there's a when there's not even like you know a big hegemonic language coming at you anymore, then that kind of becomes useful, uh, useless. So what you have to start experimenting with building your own languages. I literally can't remember the conclusion we come to, but there's a, a hopeful upturn at the end. I remember Zanovi talked about uh, a Russian artist that inspired him. He started making personal pieces of art for every person. So instead of fake personalization like you have with Boric and Pavlovsky and Facebook, you have real ones. So like a special piece of art for every person, which keep artists very, very busy. But I guess they're quite small pieces of art. But, but that becomes like a way to kind of communicate. Have a look at that piece. I've forgotten what it's called. Okay. Uh, but pay for your words, I think it's called. Oh, pay for your words, I've read it. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, it's that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that actually the Russian soul is a bit similar to like the feminine mystique, or it's like, <laughs> oh, it's, you know, the eternal feminine, something we don't understand. That's something from first year. I was on mushrooms. <laughs> that, was that, that was first year, I remember that. I, remember <laughs> um, I was wondering whether, um, what do you think the solution, uh, the political solution is to um, propaganda and fake news? when you actually engage in activism, for instance, and whether, you know, the examples of, I don't know, Armenia maybe recently, in my own experience with, uh, with, political, active, with like, political activism and trying to build democracy from below in uh, Moldova and Romania, it seems like um, that might be the solution, uh, community, and trying to build communities to act together to solve certain problems that can um, that can kind of give hope on the one hand and on the other hand bring people together um, um, around ideals that they believe in. Do you think that um, people overestimate Putin's skills as a political tactician given that there isn't 
since '96, there hasn't been a real election or a kind of credible election and jailing opponents and so on. That his, he, he's more skillful than he than than he's less skillful than he seems. And the other question I had was, um, you, you talked about how the the, the political tricks or things that Putin does have spread from Orban to Berlusconi to Trump to uh, the guy that you interviewed from Vote Leave. Has that, do you think that's been a, a conscious? Is there a kind of, have they all independently come to the same conclusion or or have they actually, you know, did, did, they, did they study, somehow pick it up? Is there some sort of, what's the transmission mechanism? Hmm. Is organized crime and its involvement with politics in Russia, a myth. <laughs> so the propagandist questions, that's actually my area of expertise. So it's, it's a really interesting idea about how things spread generally. And I expect it's a little bit like, like art in that sense, that you, know, you have modernism everywhere at the same kind of time, a bit earlier in other places. I think, I think spin doctors do look at each other. I think that's what they do. Like artists look at each other and are influenced by each other and borrow from each other and so that happens all the time in mean, the way that, you know, Cummings seemed inspired by Surkov or just paid attention. I think that's just part of your profession. You know, if you're doing something, you will look at what's going on globally. They have conferences, they learn from each other, you know, so why wouldn't they pick things up? But I don't think that's the main thing. The main thing is that reality is quite similar and therefore, you know, they adapt their strategy to, to, to meet that reality. I think that's probably the main driver. But, but it would be fascinating to do a proper study of that. Again, that's just purely, purely anecdotal. Uh, Russian politics and criminal thing a myth. I don't know if the trick question here is the word myth. So um, I think they're completely intertwined and you can't tell the one from the other. There's a fa fabulous, fabulous, fabulous piece in The Economist over New Year, which was this incredible interview with this guy who works between organized crime and, and government who's now in jail, but is giving interviews because it's his way, it's his insurance policy. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Have a read of that about how it actually works. However, the only thing that I do when people say, you know, Putin is a gangster, mm, meh, sort of. He is a civil servant who has a law degree from a top university and entered an elite bureaucratic institution and is a multilingual, unsuccessful secret service agent who can talk to gangsters because in the 90s you had to in Russia, who imitates gangsters because they are the myth of the gangster is very powerful in Russia. They were the most successful people in the 1990s. So you know, if you want to look good, you act and you walk and you talk a little bit like a gangster. So he's not, you know, that's not quite the same thing as saying he's a gangster. He, he, he can act like a gangster. Clearly it's a role he enjoys, but, but, but it's still not quite the same thing. In Ukraine, Yanukovych was merely a gangster, literally a gangster who'd done time for assault and robbery and stuff like that. He was literally from a gang and was put there by, by various economic forces. So, so um, there is a huge difference. And obviously, like, you know, the arrogance with which, which Putin has always had. Yanukovych is the former Ukrainian president who was, who was um, toppled after the Maidan. The arrogance which Putin would speak to Yanukovych was the end of the day. The, the arrogance of a civil servant and a secret service guy talking to, you know, some street kids. So I'd be very careful with saying Putin's a gangster. Though, though, certainly in terms of the economic system and the sort of the system of governance, it's all it's all it's all very intermingled. What was the third question? About gra grassroots activism. Oh, community that one. Building. 
Um, so in my next book, I have lots of stories of hope. I go to Mexico. I go, you know, th- th- there's there's a lot of evidence uh, that you know the, these fantastic bottom-up, uh, often internet-driven movements ha- have caught, have done incredible things. But you know, clearly regimes are catching up about how you you know how they can deal with them. I just don't know enough about the story in Romania. Um, I wish I knew more, and um, Moldova even even more so. But you know, there was this. You know, to put it into a propaganda model, there's a theory called the sp- uh, spiral of silence in, in kind of media studies and media effects, which basically says that, you know, as long as, this has got to do with democracy as well, as long as people think that something is the norm and the dominant narrative, they'll cleave to that. It doesn't matter if they believe it or not, they'll, they'll end up echoing that. So therefore, one of the things that comes out of that, when you ask people which way they're going to vote, you don't ask which way you're going to vote, you ask who do you think will win? And Cummings talks about that as well, how he always uses that question in all the polling that he did before Brexit, and that's why he knew they had a chance. So the spiral of silence, so as long as there's that, you know, the government controls all the media, people, whether they believe it or not, will kind of cleave towards that. And, you know, obviously social media and the internet, especially in these kind of closed societies, created this incredible power where, where suddenly you could hear something else. And you had this amazing swing towards people, you know, speaking their mind much more and, and moving towards other opinions. But since then, you know, it's not just Russia. Most regimes have created troll farms, which try to swamp social media. And, and again, it's not about convincing. It's just about having enough of the other voice for people to start going, oh, well, maybe I'll swing towards this again. And so Spiral of Silence is not a very hopeful version of the human and our relationship with media, but, but it's, it's, it's one of the more solid ones out there. But I was talking to people in Mexico who, who well, there was this, this battle was fought very actively in Mexico, and, and, and they felt despite you know, the previous government's domination of media, of TV, um, its massive creation of troll farms and what were known as Peña bots, they still managed to get their message through and the government lost, I mean, astoundingly in the last elections. So Mexico is one of these interesting countries, a bit like Ukraine, but it's kind of a soft democracy. And really, I think the great fight now isn't even in the Chinas of this world, which are just so locked down. I mean, they have concentration camps, but actually in these kind of soft democracies, Ukraine, Mexico, I know Romania's in the EU, but maybe Romania in that bucket as well. A lot of countries in the Balkans, which are just like, you know, sort of waving in the wind, you know. And a lot of that, a lot of that contest is fought in, in social media. So I don't think it's over, by the way. I don't think it's over. I think protests now in Serbia. I don't know if you noticed this, but there are sustained protests against Vucic, who plays a very early Putinist game of playing all the narratives, creating a version of the people, dominating social media, you know, you know a very smooth operator. And now there's non-stop protests in the Balkans, uh, in, in, in Belgrade, sorry. So, so no, 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 this thing, everything's up for grabs. I think a lot depends on the social media companies. So, again, I think, I think talking about sort of, uh, sort of democracy in a digital age, uh, I think there is absolutely no reason why we shouldn't always be able to see whether a campaign is being coordinated, whether it's being driven by bots and trolls. We should be able to see that, you know. The person online, probably still be a dick, but... You know, we have to change the status of the citizen online so they can see everything that's influencing them and then they can make some kind of independent decision. So you don't feel as if you're engulfed with conspiracy theories, pro-government bots, you know, the sense that the Russians are everywhere when actually it's just like one person controlling 10,000 accounts. So if we could change sort of like the vision and, and you know, the right to a share in reality of the citizen online, then I think we could take a massive step forward. And that's getting the tech companies to change that. They can do that. They're just... They're just not, but but they will eventually. They'll get regulated. Thank.
Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure always to hear you speak. It's such a great pleasure to read you. And, and, and the, the, you tell a very, very bleak story, I think. But I'm Russian. the hope you are, you are Russian. <laughs> Have you heard of like, the happy but Russian you are book? Russian and also uh, something about your writing and, and your person is quite wild and unhinged, I think. But the, <laughs> you're not just talking about chaos. I feel you know it from the inside. But I also feel really, really happy reading you. And so I know that there is a kind of way of abiding in a, 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 a not completely fixed and ordered world that can be very good, very positive, very enjoyable. So there's my hope. OK. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>